welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through his word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we do thank you that you speak to us through it, that we have this precious uh, uh, book in front of us that we can glean from, that we can learn from, where we can get to know you and your character, and, and, and know more about us and our humanity as well, and how, how it all works together. And so we do pray, Lord, that you'll continue to show us your greatness and your glory through the, through the words on these pages, and Lord, that you'll um, bring that to life in our hearts, so that we can be uh, a people that do honor you and, uh, and, and live for you ultimately as well. So we do pray for that now uh, in your son's name. Amen. Uh, so as I was discussing with Luke earlier, you might have noticed I made a mention of uh, our state, Queensland and New South Wales. What happened this last week? We lost. Yes, Queensland lost the state of origin. Who actually cares and loves or watches the state of origin here? Yeah, that's really interesting. Hey, so about four or five people actually care, and I'm going to talk about it now because I, um, I think it's quite interesting. Uh, I don't, okay, I'll explain in a second. So State of Origin was on Wednesday night, right? And uh, while there's only a few of us in the room who actually watch and are interested in the footy, um, I was actually more amused by the memes that came out um, from the State of Origin. Uh, now, I don't like making fun of people, okay? I'm just going to say that, but... There was this meme that came out because of the Premier of New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian, I think her name is, Gladys. Uh, she got made into a meme this week. She shared this photo of her first uh, on a tweet, getting ready for game one. And there's just something odd about this photo, don't you think? So she's standing there with the curtains drawn down, a little TV in the background, holding an unopened can of Coke Zero. Uh, she's wearing her beanie and her scarf to just blue, like she's representing New South Wales, obviously, getting ready for game one, go the New South Wales Blues. But the photo itself, it doesn't really, like, it, it doesn't really scream excitement, does it? Like, uh, and there's something about that. Now, uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, if you, if you go to the next couple of slides, you can see what people did with this photo. Uh, you know, the internet's really clever. Um, but people, you know, have photoshopped her to this Bernie house there. There's um, Bernie Sanders. That's Bernie Sanders, right? Yeah. Um, I think this one, Jason Derulo falling down the stairs. Okay. You know, she's watching there as well with her can of Coke. Um, handing the can of Coke to a police officer. That's from The Shining, the movie, if you watched that. It's just so random, isn't it? Uh, you know, because it's so random. That, that, if we go back to the first picture, she's just standing in this dark room holding... <laughs> now, she didn't really put much effort in it, did she? Like, in terms of like, showing her how excited she is. And I totally relate to this picture. Yay, go Queensland! But do I really care about the state of origin? Do I really care about a group of men wrestling each other on the footy field, you know? Uh, Sure, it's fun to watch with others, and it is fun to watch with Luke sometimes because he gets really heated and excited, and I just, you know, we, we make fun of each other. Um, and I can wear the colours. I can, I can wear my maroon uh, and, and go to a, a night to watch the, the footy with friends. Um, but 
you know, is my heart really there? It doesn't really make a difference to my life, does it? If whatever happens in the origin, whether we lose, you know, 50 to 6 or not, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect how I live, how I think, how I feel, or how I act. And as I look at that picture of Gladys, it made me think about the Christian life. Is, it sometimes what our, is that sometimes what our attitude to God is? We might dress up and look the part, put on our beanie and our scarf, we go to church, we'll have our caption on Twitter or Instagram or whatever social media you use that says, God is good, or a Bible verse or a, a cross emoji, and that's it, you know, just really subtle, something, you know, cute. Because we want at least people to see on the surface we're fans of God, like we're fans of our state, New South Wales or Queensland, but are our hearts really there? Do our lives truly reflect being on God's team or as God's people reflecting what the Christian life truly looks like? You see, here in chapter 12, we start hearing from what the author Paul, the author, uh, the Apostle Paul, who writes to the Romans, how we, uh, what we know about God should lead us to change, to transformation from the inside. If we truly know and believe the life-saving message of the gospel of Jesus, our lives will look very different. If you're not a Christian, this might actually help you to see why Christians believe and, and what they believe leads them to live the way they do. Uh, we left off on chapter 11 last week, and we see Paul here shifting gears with chapter 12. He starts off with verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Now, that's, really, that's already really key. We, he starts off the word, therefore. It's a connecting word, isn't it? If you step back and you read all of Romans 1 to the very end in chapter 16, in one uh, sweeping, you know, in just the whole overview, you'll see that Paul here in chapter 12 is moving towards getting really practical about how we live. What we heard in the first 11 chapters is a lot of uh, theology, the knowledge of who God is and how salvation works. He covered a lot about that, how we're justified, made right before God in Jesus and what Jesus' death accomplishes for us. He covers the topics of where law in the Old Testament, the law of Israel and faith play a role in our salvation. He talks about the grace of God and God's love for us. He talks about the promises that's been made throughout history and discusses the topics like predestination and how that all works. And so Paul is coming here now to, verse, uh, to chapter 12, verse 1, and he says, Therefore, after all that knowledge we've received now, therefore, in view of God's mercy, let me now tell you how that impacts how you live. Do you see how that's the motivation as well? In view of God's mercy. You've received the great gift of love and God's grace in Jesus. Live in view of that. You know, it isn't fear, is it? Your motivation isn't fear. It's not duty. It's not guilt-based motivation. You don't do it because you feel guilty all the time. But isn't that the misunderstanding? Isn't that the misunderstanding that we hear in so many churches sometimes, or outside of the church as well? Oh, you're just a Christian because you're scared. You're just a Christian because you feel guilty. That obedience to God comes not from fear or duty or guilt. It's in view of God's mercy to us. Live in light of that. It's interesting because Paul knows something about the human heart, doesn't he? He knows that behavior begins first with belief. What we believe about God will shape how we behave and how we obey. What we know about God will shape how we worship and praise God. Remember what I always say here, if you've been here with us, right theology leads to right doxology, right worship. 
That's the idea. Right theology, right knowledge of God leads to right worship of God. And that's precisely where Paul is leading us. If this is true of God, if what we've learned in the first 11 chapters is, what we've, that, is that we've received the mercies of God in Christ Jesus, what does Paul say? He calls us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Let's read from verse 1 again. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The Christian who has put their faith in Jesus is called then to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? Well, we really need to understand the richness of this statement as Paul intended it. He's using Old Testament temple language here, right? Priests would bring living animal sacrifices before God to slaughter, and he'd offer up these animal sacrifices for the forgiveness of our sins. That's what happened in the Old Testament. It was a sin offering. Now, what we've learned in Romans is that Jesus was that sacrifice for us, wasn't he? So we don't need to do animal sacrifices anymore. Jesus was that, um, the sacrifice on our behalf. The Son of God sacrificed his life. Our sins are forgiven when we put our faith in Jesus. No, no more need for animals. But what happened in the Old Testament, in, in the temple, there would be another offering. Now, you might not know about this, but there was one called the burnt offering. So there was a sin offering and the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was the best of your animals, and that was given as a fragrant, you know, pleasing offering to God. It was set apart, and the idea of set apart is holy. It was set apart in the sense, uh, in that in that sense, and it was a sacrifice offering to you know, offering to God. It wasn't the leftovers. It was the best of your crop of your animals. Paul is saying, "You've been forgiven. Jesus is your great sacrifice. Now, in light of the life you've been given in Jesus, live as a sacrifice." Be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. We have to see that he says, offer up our bodies as that. It's a continuous, ongoing, living, ongoing sacrifice, which means each day we're alive, (laughs) we need to come before God and offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice. Every day I need to ask God, how can I offer up my life to you? How can I offer up my time, my possessions, my talents, my future even? How can I offer up my life as a sacrifice that's pleasing to you, God? This isn't new, is it, for the Christian? What does Jesus say in the Gospels? He says, take up your cross daily, each day, and follow me. If, we're, if we call ourselves Christians, if we say Jesus is Lord, are we following him and offering up our lives daily as a sacrifice in worship of him? Because let's be honest, each day is a struggle, isn't it? Where we're going to offer up our lives, our bodies on the altar of worship to someone or something else. Do you know what I mean by that? What I mean by is that, is that to be human is to worship, isn't it? We're all worshippers whether we think of ourselves as religious people or not. Some of us, we worship money. Some of us worship status. Some of us worship popularity, comfort, security, love. Some of us worship our own families. And some of these things aren't bad in themselves. But there's a disorder to our worship. When one takes priority or, uh, over our obedience and love for God. When they become ultimate over God. We need to wrestle with this. We need to do some self-reflection. Think about it. What have you been most willing to sacrifice for? We make sacrifices for the things we worship and we're willing to because we believe it's worth it. 
because we believe they have ultimate value to us. Think about what is that thing for you? What is it that if you lose it, it'll cause you anxiety? What is it uh, that your life is centered upon attaining or achieving that your decisions are based around it? Consider this, when you make sacrifices for it, sometimes it's actually quite easy, isn't it? Because you crave it so much. And you'll happily get rid of all the things around it so you can attain that thing. You'll give up the other things so you can have it. This is hard. I personally, it's, it's hard to confront the idols of our heart, isn't it? It's so easy to justify the things I want to worship. The lawyer in my heart will always argue that I'm right. And I'm not doing that bad compared to others around me and their godliness. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Why do we do that? Because we're not willing to offer up our bodies as everything, our thoughts, our ambitions as living sacrifices to God. It gets really interesting because Paul says, this is your true and proper worship. The word here in Greek, interestingly, this word here for true and proper is the word actually logical. This is your logical worship. The worship of God through offering up your whole self is a reasonable and logical, rational result of what you know about God and what God has done for us through Jesus in the gospel. The more we know God, the more it should lead us to want to worship him above anything else. So remember how we started off with the word therefore. Back in chapter 1, in chapter 1, if you're with us, he wrote about our sin, that there's a disorder in the way that we worship. We worship created things over the creator. And here he's saying, once we know the gospel, we'll see that God is far more worthy of our worship, of our praise, our time, our energy, our efforts, our emotions, than the other idols that we've created in our lives. Far better. Here's the thing, we need to dig deep and ask ourselves, if you're only giving yourself half-heartedly to God, if you're you're only, uh, if, if you are unmoved by the gospel, if, if the gospel doesn't move you to repentance or has not brought about change, then you have to really consider, do you understand the gospel? Because when we get the gospel, when we understand and believe and have experienced the mercies of God, guess what? It logically leads us to worship God through the offering up of our lives as living sacrifices that desire to be holy and pleasing to God. That's what becomes the center. That's what becomes our highest priority. See how being a Christian isn't just about going to church. It is about going to church, Sunday, but it's so much more as well. It's so much more than just taking the title of Christian saying you believe and giving lip service to God. That doesn't mean you worship God. It doesn't mean you think God is worthy. Our words are so empty if our lifestyle doesn't reflect it. The Christian who believes in God thinks God is worthy of worship, and that's reflected through their everyday life, through the way they work, through the way they view their money as God's money to steward, through the way that they view their rest, their relationships, their family, their very lives. It all belongs to God. And that offering up of our lives, that's worship. That's what the Christian life looks like. Now, too often our Christianity only goes skin deep, doesn't it? Too often our worship is just limited to a Sunday. If we rock up to church on a Sunday, sometimes we don't. And sometimes we go to church once a month and that's our worship. 
for the whole month, that one Sunday morning for two hours. I've done it. I've done my worship this month. It's like wearing the New South Wales or Queensland beanie and scarf to show people we're representing, but is that it? Are we just putting on our church clothes? Or will, we meet, or will people meet Christ through the way you live? Will they see Christ through the way you prioritize God and choose to obey Him and worship Him over the other idols of your life? See, the second thing that Paul wants us to see that it's going to affect the way we think and view life as well, from verse 2 it says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, I love this because what, what Paul does is he gets us to consider and reflect on the influences around us. We're not born into a, a vacuum, are we? We're born into a certain society and culture and environment. Who we are is a product. We're products of, of nature and nurture, products of our environment. And because it's so subtle, it's all around us, we have to be so aware of how we're thinking and how we're living. And instead, to, to consider how we can think and live according to God's will, instead the gospel that's at work in and through us. Paul's putting up these two patterns of how we live, right? We can think and feel and believe as the world tells us to, and we're carried along with the stream of culture, or we can allow our character and our thoughts to be captured instead by the gospel. It's radical and it's countercultural. It's against the stream of, of culture, isn't it, often? Now, that's not impossible. We find that really hard to do, don't we? But it's actually not impossible to think about. Think about the hipster movement 10 years ago, right? It's still around sometimes. But, you know, the hipster movement came from a group of young people who didn't want to conform to mainstream culture and fashion or whatever. But the very idea of the hipster movement became so mainstream, people conformed to it. You know, so, but they were pushing back against it. They didn't want to conform. They were trying to be countercultural. Why aren't Christians known for that? Other, other people in society, people take a stand against uh, social media, for example. They want to be countercultural because there are so many, there's so much research and documentaries coming out now, which is really interesting, saying that you know, social media is actually forming the way we think. You know, the, the news that we watch, the, the articles, the information we're searching for on Google, the YouTube videos, they actually tell us how to think. What's being fed to us is being fed to us by big tech companies. They've manipulated what we see online. So because of this... This social dilemma, essentially, in the name of a documentary I watched. You know, people are pushing back on social media, not wanting to conform to what they tell us to think. You know, if it's not social media, though, it's going to be something in, else in the world that will lead us to worship, isn't it? What does it mean when Paul says not to conform to the pattern of the world? It means that our heart's temptation is to follow the very basic principle that you and I, we are the ones who sit on the thrones of our lives. Don't conform to the pattern of the world means it, it, the, the times when we'll make gods of, of pleasure and status and security and success, the gods of this world that we worship and conform to in the way we live, feel and behave. Paul is saying don't conform to the pattern of this world. And he contrasts this conforming with transforming. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Instead of allowing our thinking and feeling and behaving to be shaped by the world, what if we could be transformed and our thinking and feeling and believing was shaped by the gospel? And there's this word renewing here, an ongoing, again, ongoing, continuous, daily renewing of our mind to keep thinking, what is it I'm living for? What is it that I'm living for? Why am I making these decisions for my life, for my family, for my work, with my money, with my relationships? 
When, when people ask me what I, what I, and when people ask me, right, as a pastor, when I, what I think of stuff, or as a Christian even, what I think of stuff, this is what I want to ask them. How does the gospel speak into that situation? How does the gospel speak into that situation? And I encourage you guys here to ask your heart that question each day as well. Ask your heart, am I pursuing this because of my need for security? Am I pursuing this for my need for success, status, freedom, popularity, wealth? Am I pursuing this feeling this way, behaving like this because of my, my sin? If Jesus asked me to give this up, would I be able to? But perhaps we also need to ask the flip side. Am I pursuing this because I want to glorify Jesus? Am I pursuing this, this opportunity today? Am I making these decisions uh, because I want to make Jesus look good? Perhaps the renewing of our mind is to stop and ask, how can I use this moment, this opportunity to be intentional, to see Christ, to be holy with what's before me? Now, honestly, this isn't easy, is it? We need God's Spirit to help us. But, friends, we need to start with coming to see the goodness of Jesus, that in light of His mercy, we don't now have to, we get to. We get to live for Him. What a privilege. Our sacrifices aren't loss. Our sacrifices are gain. We get to have more of Jesus in our sacrifices. It's not burdensome sacrifice, it's joyful sacrifice. We now have something far better to live for. You see what Paul is saying? Renewing your mind is allowing the gospel to capture your thoughts and your perspectives on life, your very worldview of how you see the world. I remember being in a class when I was at Bible college, and I remember being taught by a woman telling us how we should teach children, right? Like kids' church or Sunday school. And it's so easy to look at children and say, man, they're so naughty. We, we, you know, we, we expect them to be good kids. Oh, they're so naughty all the time. And it's so hard. But she said to us, what do you expect? <laughs> what do you expect? Because children are humans too. Humans have sin in their lives. And what she was doing was to help us think, help us to expect. Uh, I mean, we expect, right? And we hope that our children will be good behaved kids. But the reality is, if we want the gospel to shape our lives, and we know we're sinners, shouldn't we expect them to be little versions of us? Sinners that need to know the love and grace of God to be transformed? That's a different worldview, isn't it? That's a different way of thinking, letting the gospel shape the way we approach life. Now, too often, uh, people will say to you, Christians might say to you, stop listening to Cardi B, <laughs> or watching R-rated films, delete your Insta- Instagram because of all the smut on that. Now, I get that might be helpful advice, and, 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 and we should be filling our mind with things that are holy and, and not what the culture around us tells us to believe. Yes, that's good. I agree with that to an extent, but it's, it's so much more. It's actually about transformation. It's not about stop doing this. It starts with this first, transforming your mind with the gospel renewing your mind, how the gospel shapes our minds, our thoughts, and so that it will overflow then to how it will shape our behavior and ultimately transformation occurs. What we believe leads to how we behave. If you've been told, for example, if you've been told all your life, and you, you know, I hear this from my psychology friends, Mikey, if you believe all your life you've been told you're not good enough, there's a chance then as an adult you're going to have a lot of inse- insecurities because that's what you believe about yourself, that you're not good enough. 
and it'll be seen in your behavior and how you respond. Isn't that true? That's how humanity is. What if you changed how, what you believed about yourself? And, and we read that in pop psychology so much, the self-empowerment movement. Our therapist tells us that, you know, to, to help us process how we think of ourselves. But for the Christian, what you once lived for isn't what you now live for. We need to transform, renew our mind. What once captured your heart, your ambitions, all your energy, your desires is transformed because you've now met Jesus, the greater glory and wonder that he is in the gospel. Everything else fades in comparison. As believers are renewed in the mercies of the gospel, they are transformed into the kind of people who obey God from the heart. When our minds are renewed, our hearts are impacted, and the gospel takes root in our lives, that our thoughts and our hearts and our actions now are shaped by the gospel, by Jesus. We're transformed. Now, the third thing that marks a Christian life, though, from this passage, and this flows from the first two, is that it will lead us to serve others selflessly because it's not about us anymore. If we've experienced God's mercies in our lives, if we've offered up our bodies as sacrifices, if we've been transformed by the renewing of our mind, it leads to thinking less of ourselves and thinking more about the needs of those around us. We're not living for ourselves anymore. We've been rescued in Jesus. We've got everything we need that fulfills our every spiritual need. We have Christ himself. We have that freedom now where we don't have to keep living for the rat race, living for the expectations of those around us, conforming to the world. That stuff is exhausting. But in our freedom and our sacrifice, we start seeing our time and our talents and our gifts and our skills and our abilities. We see them as opportunities to offer up in service to God and to others like Jesus has served us. And so he says in verse 3, let's read it together. For by grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. If you're living as a sacrifice, it means you and I, in our joy and our freedom, we get to serve God and we get to serve the body of Christ, which is the church family. That means when things get hard, we go through the challenge and we persevere together, we serve one another. When things are good and when we uh, see others coming to faith or experiencing God's work, we share in that celebration together. If you're involved in one of our missional communities each week, our midweek groups, every week we start, and hopefully I think every group does this, we start off praising God for what he's doing in our lives because together we want to share in that. We want to celebrate together because we're the body of Christ. We're unified in him. See, he's saying by grace we stand equal before God. No one is greater or more holier than the next. We all have sin. We are all weak, vulnerable creatures before a holy and mighty God. We've all been saved, not by our works, but by grace. And at the same time, God has gifted all of us differently as a part of this one body. The Christian who knows and believes the gospel moves towards one another in love and service because we are one in Christ. We follow the footsteps of a crucified Savior who served us through sacrifice, don't we? 
So in these verses, there are these ministry gifts. Ministry really just means service, these service gifts. Every Christian has ministry gifts. Um, and so we should be, he calls us to use our gifts to serve the church. God doesn't make us Christians and then tells us to sit back and warm the bench and be passive. God calls you to faith. He gives you life and gifts us with ministry gifts to serve the church, to play our role in building up this body, to make this body stronger, to mature in holiness, to be healthy. Uh, some of you guys know I go to the gym a few times a week, and I talk to the PT there, and I just want to work on my arms and my chest all the time. He says, no, you've got to work out all your body. You have to work on your legs too. You've got to make your whole body stronger. I always skip leg day. I just don't like leg day. But we have to make the whole body stronger, and every part of the body needs to work together. This is what a healthy church looks like. You know, a healthy church isn't one where only the pastor or the staff workers or the elders are the, or the leaders are the only ones serving. A healthy church isn't one where only 20% of the Christians are serving the other 80%. That happens. That's actually an average in a lot of churches. A healthy church isn't one where people expect leaders to do everything and meet their every needs. A healthy church isn't one where people are entitled and won't get their hands dirty because they think it's beneath them. A healthy church isn't one where people come just to consume and it's about them. A healthy church isn't one where it's just about the individual. It's actually about the community. You see, what a healthy church is, is one that wants to see God glorified together, where we see the same mission, to see people come to know the saving work in Jesus, and we want to see that happen. It's when we think about others and move towards others, serving others with our gifts and the way that God has wired us. So let me be super clear about this. There is no such thing as passive Christians. Every, every Christian should be asking, how can I serve? It's one of the marks of a Christian life. I remember 15 years ago when I went, started going to church, I recall my pastor at the time saying, you've been blessed to be a blessing to others. You're not only served by Christ, but Christ calls you to serve others too. So because if you are here and if you're a Christian, you have an opportunity to reach others around you in the way that God has wired you. And you know what? I celebrate this reality all the time. I am so thankful for how God has built our church here at Providence. I'm so encouraged when I see our serving teams serve together and, uh, you know, and, and there are so many different names on that serving list for a small church. I'm so encouraged by that. And I'm so encouraged because people are different to me here. I celebrate that people can reach others better than I can. That there are people here who have skills and wisdom that I don't necessarily have. That's why we're different members of the same body. We're wired in a different way and we're given different gifts. God forms us as his people, his church family. And he lists, us, he, he lists out some of these gifts here, doesn't he? Prophesy, which here would really likely mean speaking gospel truths with, according to our faith, he says. Teaching the Bible, he says. Serving, giving generously, encouragement, leading, showing mercy, doing social justice, essentially. It's a short list. It's not exhaustive. But he gives us a list, doesn't he, to help us see that they're all important. The way God has wired you, that these, these gifts that you have, they're all important. Put your heart behind it. Too often we come to church and we think the only important role is, is the pastor's role, the guy who's teaching the Bible, 
or, 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 our, or our Bible study group leaders. They're the ones who are teaching the Bible. They're the only important roles, the only important gifts, but that's not true. Every gift, every service in the church plays a part to see the body be healthy and strong, to see the body mature and grow. That's a good thing. Embrace the way God has wired you. Use your gifts to serve Him and serve others because they're vital to the body of Christ. Now, here's the danger. You serve others and you make sacrifices and we're all human. We get tired. Sometimes we get exhausted. I know some of you have come from churches where you serve so much and you got burnt out and you came to Providence and you needed time to rest. You were so bitter and angry and frustrated. You weren't serving out of grace, you were serving out of guilt. There are times where you'll get tired and you'll think to yourself, I don't actually get much appreciation here for serving. I don't get much acknowledgement or validation. And then the reason why you, start, why you serve becomes diluted over time. Eventually, it leads to a heart of bitterness and a heart of comparison towards others. I do more than this person does. Yet this person gets more validation than me. We start getting these feelings of superiority, thinking that we're better than others, which Paul alludes to here. Why am I always serving but no one else is, you think to yourself. When will I get served by someone else, you wonder. I deserve appreciation, don't I? I deserve thanks to be publicly acknowledged by Mikey on stage at some point, don't I? By the pastor? And without realizing your heart has drifted to making serving others about you and about getting recognition. And it's not about worshiping Jesus anymore. Not about serving in view of the mercies of God that has been given to us in Jesus. Have you been in that space before? I know I have. And I need to keep returning to the why I do what I do. Jesus was a dying sacrifice so I could be a living sacrifice. So you and I could be a living sacrifice. He gave up his life for you and me. Will we give up our life for him? Not for, not for, we don't do it for ourselves. We do it for Jesus. So what does the Christian life look like? In light of receiving the grace and mercy of God, once you've seen the beauty of Jesus and come to the point in your life where you call him Lord and Savior, what will your life look like? Will it look like joyful, obedient sacrifice? Will it look like transformation and a renewing of your mind? Will it look like humble service to God and to others? Honestly, you won't have any of those desires if you don't truly understand the goodness and wonder of Jesus. If you don't understand the blessings you've received in Him, you won't have those desires. And if that's you, then I want to encourage you, please come before the Word of God. Spend time listening to Him speak. Go back over the first 11 chapters, dwell in them, meditate on them, to discover His grace and love for you and the forgiveness that you've received at the cross. Sit down with others, other Christians Read the word together, ask questions, investigate why Christians would give up their very lives for the sake of the gospel. But for the rest of us, though, who are Christians, who are striving to live this out, for some of us who've been going to church for a while, and who thought a meme about the state of our origin would make us think about this? Who we are and how we live? Let's be challenged to consider, am I just wearing my church clothes? 
hoping that I, if I just look the part, I'm in? Or is there an inner transformation at work? Do I see my life as an offering, a living sacrifice to God? Some of you guys have been new to church these last couple of years, but a few years ago, we had a guy who used to come to this church. Some of you guys might remember him. His name was Martin. Martin, was, um, Martin is an uh, Australian-born Korean guy, and he's very playful, he's very fun, he jokes a lot, uh, sometimes inappropriately. Uh, if you know him, he really lives for pleasure and security in himself. He called himself a Christian. And he came to our church for a, a couple of years while he lived in Brisbane from Sydney, and he moved back to Sydney in 2019. He called himself a Christian, came to church, um, and he wore church clothes. But he didn't live like one. And I saw him last month, and I have his permission to share. Uh, but something happened to him in Sydney. A friend challenged him about his sin and whether he was a Christian, whether Jesus was worth his repentance and obedience. Something happened in him. He had to question everything about his faith. Was he really a Christian? How would you be able to tell? And he tells me since then, that was a year ago, since then he's been renewing his mind. It began, firstly, and um, this is really interesting, he, he, it began with turning away from lust, the struggle of lust in his life. It turned, and then the second stage, he says it was in stages, the second stage was thinking how, how he uses his money, because he makes good money, uh, and how he can use that for the gospel. And the third thing was how he can use his time to, to serve and how he can use his thoughts to glorify God. It was really encouraging. And, and he texted me again last night. I, I messaged him last night just to get his permission. Uh, and he's reciting Bible verses to me. This is where I saw it in the Bible. You can share that with him too. And he's listing out these Bible verses, how God's word influenced him. And I'm listening to him, and I'm thinking, this isn't Martin. But then I'm praising God, because this isn't the Martin who conformed to the world before. This is a, a man that's been transformed by the word. He reads the Bible every Saturday morning with a, a, a peer at church. So he goes to church on Sunday, he goes to Bible study group, and he still makes time on a Saturday morning to encourage another brother in church, and he's encouraged as well. He tells me now one of his favorite things to do in serving the gospel is door knocking and walk up evangelism. This is not Martin, if you know Martin, right? He, he says to me, I want to like, tell people about creation and, and death and, 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 the, and, and heaven because... There's so much brokenness in our world, and people need to hear about Jesus. It's one of his favorite things to do now. Oh, wow, I praise God for that transformation in his heart. But you know what? I'm also praising God because I see that transformation happen here in this church. And I've seen that happen so many times in this church uh, where people have come uh, from a place where they were conforming to the world, but now they're transformed by the word. People who thought they were Christians but had not truly understood the gospel. But when they realized, they realized that they don't want to live for themselves. They want to live for Jesus because he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our very life. Friends, is he worthy of yours? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you that we get to... Um, be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Lord, you've called us to, be, to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice to you, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so we pray, Lord, um, that you'll, you'll do that in our hearts. You'll help us to see the goodness and glory of the gospel and how it transforms us so that we, we can now not 
just live for ourselves. We don't need to. We have everything in Jesus. We can now live to serve you, our God, and we can live to serve others around us, especially our church family, Lord, that you've called us to love and serve. I pray, Lord, that you will do that work in our hearts, convict our hearts of these truths, of gospel truths, to remind us that we've been blessed to be a blessing, that, Lord, we have Christ who served us to be a dying sacrifice so that we could be a living one. And so I pray, Lord, today your spirit will bring us to our knees, help us to repent, help us to move towards you in obedience. May your spirit do that daily, Lord, in our lives. Help us each day, Lord, to continually renew our minds, to question what are we living for today, and to bring it all before you, before the cross. We pray for this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.